Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast presented by Spartan Forge. On today's episode, I have a special one where I have the best deer hunters in the country debating some complex topics. I'm joined by Levi Morgan, Andy May, Johnny Stewart, Taylor Chamberlain, Garrett Prawl, Lee Ellis, and Drew Carroll to have a roundtable discussion about different topics that don't really have straightforward answers. We discuss executing shots in the moment of truth, public versus private land, fixed versus mechanical broadheads, favorite time of year to kill a mature buck, what it takes to be consistently successful, personal hunting goals, and much more. 100% born in the Appalachian Mountains and made in the USA, Timber Ninja Outdoors provides a range of mobile hunting options to accommodate diverse hunting preferences. Whether you prioritize comfort, lightweight design, or versatility, their two-panel and single-panel saddles collection has something for everyone. The Black Belt Nano is the lightest single-panel saddle available on the market, weighing in under a pound. The saddle is designed with the minimalist hunter in mind, focusing on lightweight functionality and breathability. One notable feature is the patent-pending magnetic stick clip system on the side, which allows for convenient transportation of sticks up the tree, as well as a built-in platform holder. The Nano Saddle can be folded up to the size of a Nalgene bottle, enabling easy portability. With a four-way stretch material on the back for a comfortable fit, as well as strategically placed padding for hip pinch relief, you can use code EASTMEETSWEST to get free shipping on any Timber Ninja order. If you try it out and don't like it, send it back within 30 days for a full refund. Learn more at TimberNinjaOutdoors.com and sign up for their email newsletter for exclusive discounts and product drops. When it comes to optics, I get the same question over and over again. What are the best all-around binoculars? Well, it's tough to find something that works in every condition great, but after using a pair of Maven B1.2 10x42s, I think I found them. They feature an 8x or a 10x option, superior low-light performance, tack-sharp edge-to-edge clarity, a generous depth of field, and a silky focus mechanism. All of Maven Optics have a lifetime no-fault warranty and hail from the great state of Wyoming. I've been using Maven Optics since I bought my first pair in 2017, and I think you should test them out for yourself. Head over to mavenbuilt.com and use the code EASTMEETSWEST-GIFT for a free gift with any full-price optics order. For all of those that want a truck bed cover for work or play, Diamondback makes the the top-of-the-line heavy-duty covers that help you do more with your truck. They're perfect for the truck-owning, avid sportsmen, outdoor enthusiasts, and weekend project warriors. I'm currently using the HD cover that is capable of holding up to 1,600 pounds on the top. And then I have the Yakima overhaul HD bars on top, so I can put my rooftop tent on it. When I'm not using my rooftop tent and able to use the trifold design of the Diamondback, I have the Crossbin 8 in there to organize all of my stuff in the back of my truck bed. Diamondback is made right here in Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania. If you want to check them out, head over to diamondbackcovers.com. If you've wanted that hunting camp tradition that we talk about, that experience, but you don't have a hunting camp of your own, you're welcome to come stay at my hunting camp up here in the Pennsylvania wilds called the Elk Crossing Getaway in the PA wilds. 
So if you go over to Airbnb, you can check out our three-bedroom, one-and-a-half-bath house that's right in the heart of Pennsylvania elk country. It's only minutes away from a bunch of public land to be able to hunt, hiking trails, outdoor recreation, fishing, all of those things there. The house is completely fully stocked with everything that you need to be able to, to spend a week hunting deer, taking your family up to see the elk, anything like that. So if you head over to Airbnb and search Elk Cross and Getaway in the PA Wilds, you'll find my listing there and you can rent out my house. You send us a message, an inquiry that you're interested in it and mention that you heard it on the podcast here, then we'll get you 10% off of your first day. On this week's Mountain Buck Monday story of the week comes out of Tennessee from Brandon Jenkins. So Brandon wrote in, I set a goal early in the year to get in shape and get after a good mountain buck. I hunted hard all season, laid in there with without much luck. With the last weekend of the season, it was raining and super foggy as me and my best friend checked the first camera. There were some good bucks on there, so we reset the camera and headed to the next spot. We were going down this ridge that was super rocky. When we finally got to the logging road we wanted to be on, we'd been talking the whole way down the ridge. We weren't really trying to be quiet or anything when we got to the logging road. I asked if it was his birthday, and it just so happened to be where I said, Happy birthday, buddy. We took about 10 steps, and there was this buck over the hill scratching his back with his horns. We both got down on one knee. I pulled my gun up and got the crosshair on the deer, and I couldn't really see the body clearly because of the fog and rain. The buck used his back legs to scratch his belly, and the movement from that let me see enough to get a shot off. At this time, I really didn't know how big the deer was. I knew it was a good-sized deer after I shot, and then the deer ran off. Then we saw him run into a big thicket, found blood, and started tracking with bad weather coming in. And it's still raining. We pushed on with tracking him. We ended up jumping him up, and he ran down the ridge into another thicket. But this time, I could see him laying on the other side of it and was able to get a second shot off on this deer. It was the last day of the season, and I couldn't believe what we had just done. So if you want to check out this buck, which is one of the biggest bucks I've seen come out of the Tennessee mountains, at least coming into this this mountain buck Monday, just giant deer. You head over to East Meets West Hunt Instagram or East Meets West Outdoors on Facebook. You can check that out. Feel free to send over your mountain buck Monday submission. Love to hear it, big or small, any public, private land, but I want it to be a big woods mountain buck. Send that in. Uh, you can go over to my website, eastmeetswesthunt.com, fill out the contact us form, and uh, send in your story. Just a short paragraph with a couple of photos would be great. All right, so um, some news this week. Uh, this podcast here that's coming out, it was from the Spartan Forge Retreat. So the retreat was... Uh, when was it? I guess it was a week or so ago, two weeks, I guess now, uh, two weeks ago, it was so much fun. The, the people that are involved with the Spartan Forge team are just incredible. The, the pro staff team is just a bunch of freaking killers and Bill and his team at Spartan Forge are doing everything they can to continually improve this app. I'm really excited for everyone to see the next update, which uh, 
really could be out any day here. Uh, we've been working out some bugs on it. I've been testing it for, I, th I think, months now. Uh, it's there's gonna be a lot of changes, a lot of um, a lot of changes coming to it. So I'll I'll cover that a little more when those come out. But we're gonna be doing a lot of videos um, on the Spartan Forge page mostly on their YouTube channel and stuff of how to use different features. That's some of the feedback we've gotten is just not understanding how to use some of it. So I want to try to help and make that more clear, but I think it's going to be a really useful tool. Some of the people at the, at the Spartan or at the mountain buck scouting camp got to see some of the, the features, the new features live and uh, including the web map, which is awesome. And uh, not sure how much I'm able to talk about all that, but I just gave you a little bit on it. So anyways, that's coming out. And uh, this podcast is going to also be a video podcast. It's going to take a couple days to get it up on my YouTube channel. We're having some difficulties in the editing process on the video version, so be patient. But if you subscribe to my YouTube, which is just my name, Bo Martonic, hit that little bell to notify you when a new video comes out and you'll see it. The next three episodes are all going to be video podcasts, actually, and I might do some more of it. And what I really want to know is give me your feedback. Do you care to watch video podcasts on YouTube? Do you think it's a waste of time? takes a lot more time on my, on my end, but I know a lot of people enjoy that. So uh, just trying to try something different. So if you like it, let me know. If you don't, let me know as well. So as always, I appreciate it. If you could head over to wherever you listen to the podcast, give a rating and review. Man, that helps out so much. And uh, yeah, just really appreciate it, guys. I hope that you have a great rest of your week. All right, we're live. I guess uh, I, I guess this is part of the East Meets West Hunt podcast slash Spartan Forge. And uh, so sitting here in a round table kind of discussion, it's going to be a, a different type of podcast where we're going to have up to, I don't know, eight, nine people that might filter through here, but four at a time. Going to cut out all the fluff at the beginning. I really don't care about Taylor Chamberlain's background uh, or nope. Levi Morgan or Andy May, but they're all here sitting with me. What's going on, guys? What's up? Uh, just uh, shooting some bows at the Spartan Forge event, and we tried sending Levi down the road, but he stuck around. Uh, you know, I'm very disappointed in my performance. Yeah. Personally, you, I was at the first person out after when we were starting. I'm like, oh yeah, you don't want to be the first person out, and then lo and behold, a little 37 yard chip shot, and guess what? See ya. So yeah, it was close fun. though. Yeah, real close to <laughs> yeah, missing the target. <laughs> you know, those darn pins. I'm not used to moving them around. Did you use the wrong pin? Yeah. But you know, excuses are the nails that right, build yeah. the houses of losers, right? I always said it for you, so it's not actually. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very good observation. Thanks. You're just that dialed in. I knew you were. <laughs> and I put my uh, my Sunday makeup on for you today on one eye. Yeah, what happened? I have a black eye. I, I'm pretty sure that uh, your wife punched in the face, but that's not the story we're getting. I wish my wife would hit this hard. Actually, my wife's boyfriend doesn't hit very hard, clearly. <laughs> no, my my daughter, um, me being the genius that I am, does not understand the difference between toss me my phone, meaning toss me gently, or throw a Nolan Ryan fastball in my face. So I got my phone back. And that's what hit you in the corner of the yeah, eye. In the corner of the eye, I thought she blew my eyeball up. It was awful. 
Andy, you think the story's legit? I don't know. It's a little, a little far-fetched. I swear to God. Well, it's how Taylor. I, I mean, <laughs> got to be something. Yeah. Something better than that. Does that, like, affect your country club membership and stuff? Like, Yeah, we're not allowed at the club. I didn't think with so. With a yeah. black eye. That, that's that's frowned upon. That's they make not you a good look. Back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not a good look. <laughs> that's funny. So, the, yeah, the, the competition that we had there, it was funny. We were joking up front about it. We're like... When Levi comes here, he's got nothing to win and everything to lose because he's like the big guy at the bar that people want to fight just to prove a point because he's a big guy. And Levi, with being a million-time world champion shooter, I mean, everybody's trying to take him out, specifically Lee Ellis, who is watching tapes and trying to <laughs> trying to get find your weaknesses. Yeah, you know, those are those are my least favorite type of shoots. Because yeah. I feel like if I win, it's like cool. <laughs> but if I don't, it's like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's going on Instagram, Facebook, <laughs> YouTube. No, it's fine. I just did one the other day against a girl and got totally throttled. So <laughs> I think it already had over a million views. Did it really? Yeah. They called it the legend shoot. And I knew before I agreed to do it, it was a bad idea. But I did it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> She's like the number one female archer that ever lived. Well, yeah, that's... And it was... She's really good. Yeah. When you're in a shoot like that, when do you get most nervous? Like, when do your nerves hit the the highest point? Depends on the shoot, um, and it depends on, like... Like, say we're at a 3D event, and the final arrow, I have to 14 it to win. Obviously, that's a way more stressful situation than you got to hit an 8 to win, you know? So, like, in that situation, it'd be the final arrow, but, like, Vegas... Something like that. It's normally my first in for score because, like, it's a three-day event and you can't miss once. Like, if you miss your first arrow, yeah, you might as done. well go home. Yeah. If you miss your last arrow, go home. So, it's like that weather in that first because you've been not nervous. Practice, practice, practice. They blow the whistle. Game time. All the nerves hit. And it's like weather in that first three arrows is the hardest. So, it's just different every event. How do you deal with that? Like how, what's like, what's your process or what, what goes through your head in those types of situations, those high stress situations? Um, ideally just my shot process. Um, but that's easier said than done, you know, and I do it well sometimes and I don't do it well other times. Um, but you, you know, you really don't want to focus on what's at stake. That's when you really start messing up. Like, okay, if I miss here, I'm, I get to go home or there's $120,000 on the line and I only have one more arrow and I'm, I win, you know, and that's when you start thinking those thoughts, you go home. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you, you really have to be so like in to what you're doing. Okay. I'm drawing back. I'm doing this. I'm put the pin in the middle, forget about it. Execute. Just everything has to have step because the minute you leave space, your mind goes to what's at stake or what, you know, what could go wrong. And when you think about something happening at full draw, it normally does like, don't go low. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's the same as like uh, if you got a giant buck walking in and somebody's like, oh my God, that thing's going to look great on my wall. Like, yeah. you're going to miss that. Oh, yeah. Or if you thought of like, don't miss, don't miss, you know, like, but if you focus on the process right. and like just kind of check those little steps off, yep. next thing you know, it's like a center punch. Perfect. It, yeah. It, it kind of takes you out of that moment. Yeah. You know, if you can, if you can give yourself a process, a step-by-step -step process to focus on, it takes the weight 
of the situation exactly off. Like out here, you know, it's like this is my chance to beat Levi Levi Morgan. That's the wrong thing to be thinking about. Mm-hmm. You know, you should be thinking about letting that pin float in the middle and just executing your shot. Right. But it's easier said than done, and it's, yeah. it, it usually falls apart yeah. on those highest those highest pressure moments. You know, whether it's that big buck or you know standing mm-hmm. on the line of Vegas with that one arrow left or whatever. You yeah. know, I think hard, I want. I think I won more tournaments like in 2010 through 2014, just like, it seemed like I didn't do anything special. I just stayed the same. And like these guys would shoot way ahead and maintain a lead. And I was just like there, you know, there hanging around there and we get in the finals and they all just, poof, and I'm just still doing the, just, just staying consistent, you know? And I, I felt like I never, I'm like, I didn't even feel like I deserved to win, you know, but I was just there and like consistent. And those guys are just boom, boom. So like you got to stay like your emotions, your thoughts, everything need to be here. And a lot of times I would shoot and win. And then afterwards just like fall apart. Cause I'm like, holy crap, if I would have made one mistake here, then you start thinking like, but if you start thinking those things during the event, that's when it's like, it's over. Yeah. What's your, what, what, when you draw back, Maybe give a, an example like a high pressure tournament situation or, you know, a big buck. What is your process? What are you working through in your mind? Are you saying a, a mantra to yourself? Are you thinking about relaxing and letting it float? Or are you thinking about pull, pull, pull? Like, what do you, how do you work through that? Yeah, hunting, I, t- I said earlier, if I could take that same confidence that I have when I'm hunting to like competition, I would be way better off. So, like, hunting, I'm thinking about so many things other than like this buck getting away or making a bad shot. So like to me, my best friend hunting is my range finder because I'm constantly ranging because it keeps my mind occupied. So like if he's walking, I'm hitting him every two steps, like I'm here. And then like, if there's a gap, I'm like, boom, I'm going to hit that tree range finders up. And so like, I don't give myself time to sit and go, that's 180 inch deer. And like, if I make, just make a good shot, like, oh my gosh, you know? So, and then I pull back and I'm like thinking all the things, is he on high alert? Do I pin him low? Like stay away from the shoulder. So I have all these things that I'm thinking about other than don't screw this up, you know? And so before I know it, it almost just like happens. Boom. It feels like when it, like it might be five minutes, it feels like 10 seconds to me, honey. Like it just happens. And I'm like, cool. In a tournament, it doesn't always work that way, you know. I have so much more time to sit and analyze the situation. But yeah, what about you, Andy? What's your process when you have a you know big buck in front of you or whatever animal it might be? Yeah, well, you and I have talked about it before. I had uh, 2010 <clears throat> through 2012. I had target panic as bad as anyone can get it. You know, um, really, really bad. And it was a um, a handful of people. You know, I, I kind of like started searching for the answer, the correct way to, to execute a shot. And honestly, some of your stuff really helped me. Um, uh, some stuff some, some, from guys online, just giving me a different way to think about um, the shot process because I was always the guy that, you know, pulled back as soon as that pin crossed the target, you know, hammer the trigger. Well, basically what I tried to do is I tried to learn that, like, unanticipated shot and it, it took a lot of work for me, um, a lot of blind bailing, a lot of drills that I picked up from from more experienced shooters. But now um, it's never really crept its way back in. And I've been able to keep my shots under control for the most part. But basically what I do is when I draw back and I come to anchor 
and I touch my nose to the string and I, I splash my pin like right on the target. I don't try to bring it up, down. It's just like, boom, it's, it's right there. Because what I used to do is I used to freeze below a little bit and then I'd be like almost stuck there and I'd, I'd want to jerk it up and hit it. So I just, I call it splashing, but I splash it right on the spot and I just stare at that spot. And I'll say, I'll, I'll often say to myself, settle. And that just allows me to just relax. It's like a, it's like a cue to me to relax my bow hand, relax my shoulders, just relax. And then when I'm ready, when that, when that deer moves his, his leg forward or I'm ready to execute the shot, I'll just say, I'll just say aim, aim, aim. And I can do it. I can do it two ways. I can say pull, 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 or aim, aim, aim. But what that is, is a cue for me to start building pressure. And I just aim, aim, aim. And basically what I'm doing is I'm just kind of pulling into the back wall and, um, kind of like a, like a back tension style execution, but it just helps me achieve that unanticipated release where I'm not anticipating the, the shot and, and moving my arm. So I just aim, 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 pull, 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 and it goes off and it's like kind of a surprise shot and it just, it finds its way into the middle. And it's like, I'm not trying to steer the pin. I'm not trying to hold it. I just kind of let it move and it, it does, it moves around, but I just stare at the spot I want to hit and it just keeps in that area. You know, and as long as I execute my shot smooth, you know, it seems to go there. But in a hunting situation where I need to get it to go a little quicker, I've been doing this for so long now, I can I can be a little more aggressive in my pull and make it go a little quicker when I need to. So yeah. it took a while. Um, honestly, it, it, it was a relearning of how to shoot. Um, and, you know, thanks to a lot of people putting stuff out there and a few, a handful of people that helped me. I was able to get past that because I was, I was in a bad spot, man. Yeah. Wounded deer, you know, um, missing deer. And it was just like, gosh, I loved bow hunting so much, but it was really hard to get past that. I think a lot of people get hung up not knowing like that pin floats. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then also like what's an acceptable amount of pin float. Right. And then the, the answers to those, the reason that that's hard to describe is like, it's different for everyone. Mm-hmm. Right. Like what you're sight picture looks like yours, mine, bows, they're all different because of, you know, how you're holding the bow, your strength, your physical ability, everything. And then also like your confidence level. But I did the same thing where like I had to work through a process in my shooting. Um, and I, I say it every time I release an arrow, you know, I pick a spot. So I'm aiming, I try to like visualize where the heart is on that animal. And I kind of like see it in 3d, and I want to just put an arrow right through the top of that heart. So I just pick a spot and I say paint it. So like you're saying, splashing, same thing. I think of like those old laser guided missiles back in like the Gulf War era where like a guy had to paint the laser pointer on it. Mm-hmm. So like I just stupidly think of my pin as that laser. And so in my mind, I'm like painting the spot and it just is there. And then I just say, keep it painted while you pull, 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 pull. And it just... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean you you're shooting 100 deer a year, maybe more, I don't know. Certainly a no <laughs> shortage of of food supply in the Chamberlain household. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know, we talk about pin float and I, I heard Levi saying, you know, on that on that one shot like what what was your pin doing on that um that high roller target out there with a the little white spot and he said, "Well, my pin was wasn't leaving the white." You know, and it happened to when the shot mm-hmm. broke, but he was, he was able to just let it float and it was staying in that little white circle and mine wasn't quite so tight. You know, I was staring at that circle and I would say maybe 60% of the time it's in there, but it's coming out, but it's going right back in. And I just, you just, just execute the shot. 
But I feel like if you get excessive pin movement, that can create that anxiety mm-hmm. of like, oh, I got to start steering it or I got to try to hold it tight or I got to time that release. So that's where, you know, kind of balancing your bow, yeah, getting some stabilization in there to kind of slow that down and steady that adding weight to your bow in certain spots can really calm that pin float down, decrease that anxiety. So then you're able to just stay in that shot and execute. Yeah. And, and by staring at that target, you're not forcing the pin to go no. back there. It's just naturally. Yeah. You know, it does it on its own. Yeah. It's really yeah. cool. And the, like, I think having zero pin movement a lot of times is way worse because like I'm so used to that. Like I've shot so long and like my bow, I'll wait it and balance and spend so much time getting it to sit there. And like on that target, what what gets me in trouble most of the time in tournaments is that movement, that first movement firing the shot. Like I was talking about out there, like all these other ones, like everything was fine, sits in the middle, boom. But I'm pulling so slowly on that hinge and it's like, always on the edge of firing and like like the tiniest pressure fires it and so when i'm aiming and aiming in that first move it that first movement actually fires a shot and so like if it's a constant movement you don't get that you know and so like i don't know if you guys know who joel turner is you know joel yeah joel teaches that like um his son bodie who just won vegas at 14 yeah you know the biggest shoot in the world had the lightest, like 10 ounces on his bow. And that's, and he wants fast, quick movement. So your mind can't process, oh, I'm out of the dot. Oh, I'm over here. You know, or it won't sit in the middle and then that first dip or movement fires the shot and you miss by this far. So if you have that quick movement, you're, you're staring at the middle, but it's always coming back, you know. And like, it's amazing what you can hit. And, and he also talks about like target panic is like, he asked me, he said, Levi, how much concentration and how much determination would it take for you to slowly walk through a house that's on fire and i was like a lot you know and he's like that's what it is like each shot you have to slowly walk through this house that's on fire step by step room by room once you shut a door you don't go back to it and so like when he told me that you know i started thinking about it like it makes a lot of sense where you have these steps and you treat it like a house when you pull back you're open in the front door you close it. I always say anchor it shut, you know, and then you go to the aiming room. That's the first room you come in, put the pin in the middle. Once it goes to the middle, you leave that room. And then it's just like this next step. So you never get stuck in one spot. So like if you stay in the aiming room and all of a sudden your aiming's not great, then you never make it to the execution, you know, and then you freeze. And then at some point you have to just like fire it. And I think that's where a lot of people get in trouble. They get stuck in this house or they try to run through it. It was really, it's kind of a, you know, my wife looked at me like, what, you know, (laughs) but if you really think about it, it's, it's makes a lot of sense to me, at least when I'm like my mind in that shot. Cause a lot of times it's like high pressure situations. It's like this house is on fire. Like you want to rush through all your steps and get to the final end. And that's what gets you in trouble. But that's interesting about the the quicker pin float, because he's probably not perceiving when he's, when he's out. So he can execute so much better. Yeah, because out there, even on that last shot, like I, I, I mean, this this shoot meant nothing, right? Yeah, you know what I mean. It was just for fun, but there's it still, nothing on the You don't line. want to lose. It's yeah, still yeah. pressure. Nobody you know want to be I mean? the like, first guy out. Yeah, yeah. and I, I was holding in my my <laughs> pin movement. <laughs> my pin movement was was more, and I, I stayed in it, but like I could tell, like it mm-hmm. was like it was out. I was like, oh gosh, you know, yeah. settle, settle, just let it, let it relax, but. 
that's something to think about. You know, I always thought that heavier bow, that slower, mm-hmm. gradual pin float was better. But it, it is if you can fire it in the middle. You know, mm-hmm. the problem is your mind can see like, oh, it's out. So you stop pulling. You know, and when you start that freeze and go yep. deal is when you get in a lot of trouble. But like that quick this, your mind can't be like, it's out, it's in, it's out, it's in, it's out. You know, it's just like, okay, just keep pulling, you know, mm-hmm. boom, right in the middle, boom. And like, it's just crazy what, you know, what you think is better isn't always better. Yeah. And Joel is like against the grain. I was taught my whole life to focus completely on aiming. Aim, 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 aim. But then my entire shot is based on how well I'm aiming. So when I get nervous and my pin moves, then everything f- crumbles because that's the foundation of my shot and he teaches once you put the the pin in the middle never think about it again move to execution 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 and so it's really hard like they say it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks and after you've done it for 30 years one way it's really hard for me to do that and i struggle bad trying to like okay (laughs) like i've won this, 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 and this, doing it this way. Like, I'm just going to change everything. But I do think his way is better than my way. It's just hard for me to. Are you specifically considering changing? Because, I mean, like, part of me is like, why would Levi change anything? Except for, like, you know, I've heard, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts. You have mentioned, like, you know, the indoor stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, that's something you struggle with a little yeah. more than. That this is exactly years. why. Yeah. And so I am thinking about trying to incorporate his process into dot shooting. I don't think his process works for 3D. And I would tell Joel that because you can't see what you're aiming at. And so there's no middle for your subconscious to latch to, you know, Mm -hmm. it's a constantly changing. So I'm aiming two inches right of a shadow that's moving because the wind's blowing the leaf, you know? And so like, I got to constantly check, check, okay, the wind stopped, boom, right there, just to the right of that leaf, boom, it's got a fire, you know? And so with, if I was to put it there and then, oh, forget it. Well, the wind blew the leaf two inches and now I'm aiming two inches the wrong way. And I'm just sitting there thinking I'm still in the right spot. So 3D is a lot more instinct and quicker execution. There's no middle. There's no like on the bag target where there's a big bullseye. You go to the middle, your mind knows what the middle is all the time. So, mm-hmm. Because I did Joel's method this year after Vegas for a month straight indoors and thought, this is it. Like, this is what I've been missing in indoors and target shooting my whole life. I went out to shoot a 3d round and was like, never mind. You know, <laughs> this don't work, you know? Yeah. And like, I don't think I'll ever change a thing in 3d because it's, I've been like, that's what I've done since I was this big. And like what I've done has worked, but indoors I'm very hot and cold. Like I might, I might be there at the end. I might win. I might not, you know, I've won them. And then I might totally embarrass myself. You know, <laughs> I yeah. never know which Levi's going to show up. And I think it's cause it's based so much on my aiming. Mm-hmm. So yeah, or or you could have like the situation I had today when when you have, um, I guess anxiety from staying up too late and drinking too much the night before. My pin float was very rapid. Yeah, very from, quick. <laughs> very quick. How, how so, was your heart rate? <laughs> with my, my heart rate was yeah. I don't think it's been below a hundred, but like it's uh yeah. I I'm I'm following what you guys are or you guys are saying there, but um kind of moving on to uh, different topics. I wanted to hit on some things that have you ever wanted to have Levi Morgan, Andy May, Johnny Stewart, and others available at all times? 
Well, you can with CyberScout from Spartan Forge. CyberScout is like the chat GPT for outdoors men and women. You can ask it any questions related to bow building, scouting, hunting, survival, and a whole lot more. I think you'll be impressed with how it responds. CyberScout is currently out now for a select group of early beta testers and will be available to the rest of you really soon. The entire app is a complete tool for planning your hunt with incredible aerial imagery mapping, journaling, deer prediction, and some of the most accurate and detailed weather data. Use the code EASTMEETSWEST to save 20%, and if you're still on the fence, give the 14-day free trial a chance at SpartanForge.ai. CVA has been America's number one selling muzzleloader brand for over a decade. Hunting with a muzzleloader opens up a ton of hunting opportunities across the U.S., and I've been using the Acura series, but they don't only make badass muzzleloaders. Their line of centerfire rifles are great quality and not terrible on the wallet. The Cascade short barrel is ideal for tight quarters, deer drives, and quick shots in the big woods. You can check out their line of muzzleloaders, rifles, and accessories for every season and every range at bpioutdoors.com slash CVA. If you use the code EASTMEETSWEST10, you'll get 10% off of all CVA products, which includes rifles, muzzleloaders, and accessories. I guess aren't traditional talk about things that can go... Um, people have varying opinions on. And one of them was there's like this whole thing. I've been seeing memes about it and everything where people are, there's these different classes of hunters or people put themselves in different classes, like holding themselves to hierarchies of I'm a DIY OTC public land guy or, you know, and that's, that makes me better what I shoot, you know, on a higher level. I, I'm kind of interested to hear everyone's opinions on that. And then I want to go through and start with Taylor and then walk our way through it. Um, and then I'll give mine at the end. You want my opinion on if, if shooting a deer on public land is better than shooting a deer on private land. Um, just, just your overall thought process on the whole thing. Not, not really black and white is, you know, better or not, but like, just like it, it your way like of there's thinking been, about there's it. been a little bit of a, a division. Yeah. A lot of people so, talking and, so yeah, I, I think that just overall the, the, as a hunting, as a, as a group, hunting in general, nothing good comes out of further segmenting ourselves into different little buckets and then infighting of like crossbow hunters versus bow hunters or like bait versus no bait or public land versus private land. It's like, you know, um, when, when you go out and have a successful hunt, you know, that could be a, a variety of different things that could be taking your kid on their first hunt and seeing a deer and like having them actually like just sit in a box blind on a perfectly manicured piece of property and see a deer. Or that could be going out on public land and like, you know, climbing a, a ton of vertical gain and like pushing yourself and doing whatever. Like it, nothing good comes out of, of further like segmenting and, and creating issues amongst our group of people would be my take on that. Okay. And then furthermore, like I don't get like, yeah, it's hard to shoot a deer on public land sometimes, but like, it's not apples to apples, like hunting deer in Iowa in some awesome unit. That's really hard to draw in is not the same as hunting public land in Pennsylvania or, you know, areas like around me, there's no public land. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, and also like to, to poo poo someone 
who has worked their butt off to buy dirt and then worked their butt off to get equipment there, to put a plan together, to stick to that plan for five, six, seven, 10, 15 years, whatever, and like like build a farm around Whitetail, like that's awesome. Like good for them. And even if there's some super rich person that rolled in and bought that farm already built and, and they, they just rolled in and bought a Whitetail Heaven, you know, good for them. Like they worked hard elsewhere to earn that. Like why? I, I think more people get upset out of jealousy than than that because like who here? I mean, you have a pretty nice piece of property. You've put a lot of work into it. Like that's my ultimate goal in life is to buy a piece of ground that I can manage to have like as mine. Yeah, you know, and part of that comes from I never had that in my life. Like I've never had a spot that like, I have to work really hard to get access to wherever. So I don't know. I I think that to 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 segment ourselves into these little tribes is is not a good thing. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. But I, I you know, it is like annoying to me when I'm like. The first question people seem to be asking now is like, "Did you kill it on public or private? Yeah. Is that on public? Like, what does it matter? Right. I mean, I no, it wasn't. It was, but like, I grew up hunting that way. You know, like it's not like my whole life I was spoon fed and like, here you go. You know, here's a thousand acre farm with giants on it, and here's the trail camera pictures, and we hung the stands for you. I, I mean, I grew up hunting where you didn't see a deer for two weeks hunting public land in North Carolina. And it was always my dream. Like if I can ever find good ground, like you, I want to hunt better ground. Like I, you can't kill big deer if they don't live there. And it's like, I want to ha- have a chance like later. I want to own a farm and I want to like manage it. And I just think it's like people hunt for different reasons, right? I could see the draw to being like how it would feel more uh, accomplished if you shoot a big deer on public, right? So like you're fighting for spots, uh, you got to deal with so many people coming in, um, and you, and you persevere through that and you kill a giant. That's awesome. I think some people might hunt for that reason, for that, like that feeling like I cool. I beat the deer and I beat 20 other guys that were trying to hunt in here or whatever. For me, it's not, I hunt for what I want to hunt for. Like I struggled for years on public and killed some big deer on public, but now I have the ability, <clears throat> thank God to hunt some really good ground to own some ground, you know? And so I'm like, this is what I wanted to do. This is the, like the evolution of hunting for me that I wanted. And I'm still growing and learning and changing. And, you know, used to, it was a four point. That's what made me happy. I wanted to kill, you know, any legal buck made me happy, right? Hunting public ground. Well, now I'm like changing a little bit, you know, I'm like, I would really rather just find the oldest, biggest deer here and like target that one deer, you know, cause that's why I like to hunt. I'm not going to look at the neighbor kid that shoots the four point and be like, what an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what are you doing? You know, cause I was that kid. It's just, I hunt for reasons I like to hunt and, but I, but I will be honest. It is slightly annoying. The, the like public guy almost seems to be like looking down his nose now. Yeah. Like I shot a 120 inch eight on public. I'd like to see you do that. You know, that's almost like the conversation I get. I'm like, I did do that yeah. for years. Like, And congrats for doing yeah, it. Yeah, and like, I think it's awesome, job, but yeah. like, I don't want to do that anymore. Right. You know, but I don't know. It's, uh, I agree with you. I, the fighting is ridiculous. I feel like we've, 
will find anything to fight about. Oh, yeah. And everybody in, like, I mean, the same thing is, like, oh, you need a heavier arrow. Or, like, oh, do you use an expandable broadhead? It's like, dude, like, what (laughs) does it matter, man? Like, you know, oh, yeah, your compound or, like, you know, your lighted sight, garment sight, like, whatever. It's just, like, you know, guys. And and if you think, if those people that say those things, like, oh, you know, public or private, and you... First of all, you'd know they already have a chip on their shoulder. Yeah, and they're, they're, exactly. And like, if those people would actually go back and reflect on why they're actually asking that question, and it normally comes down to their own ego is hurt mm-hmm. for, because they don't have the opportunity to do that right. or whatever. And it's like, it's like, okay, I say someone like you or like, I always see, I see, you know, Cam Haynes getting smashed oh, yeah. all the time. And it's like, first of all, he, he has proven himself through his whole life mm-hmm. getting up to that point. Second of all, even if he didn't, he obviously worked to the point where he can go on these hunts or, or you or anybody that is able to go on, you know, go higher quality ground and stuff. It's like they work to that point. Mm-hmm. That's what they want to do. Like who gives a shit? Like yeah, I, yeah. I just, I don't, I, I just can't grasp mm-hmm. that, that feeling. I think if people would actually have that serious conversation with themselves, why they're asking yeah. these questions, um, you know, it's the same thing if someone looks at someone say driving a nice vehicle, oh, you know, come up with a thousand reasons right, yeah. why. That's stupid. Yeah. Waste of money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But like exactly. Cam says, like I've heard Cam say it, he's like, and he's right. Like 99.9% of these people that give him a hard time, given the same opportunity would go hunt where Cam hunt. Yeah. You know, like Cam roughed it for so many years. Like, would I rather go hunt public where I might see a 300 inch bull in 10 days of hunting or go hunt the San Carlos Indian Reservation where I have a very good chance of shooting a 400-inch bull and I'm going to see hundreds of nice elk this week. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Let me think. I don't know where I want to go. You <laughs> yeah. Know. That sounds like a terrible week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would rather walk 50 miles and probably see a raghorn running the other way with three arrows sticking out of it. Like, <laughs> I doubt it. Yeah. Because you know. of their low FOC and <laughs> that expandable broadhead. You be shooting expandable than <laughs> under an 800-grain broad or arrow. <laughs> Probably want, yeah, probably those swackers not been able to penetrate. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think, Andy? Yeah, you know, I think, I think on both ends of the spectrum, you have some obnoxious people. You know, you have the, you have those, those public land guys that are kind of beating their chest and, you know, poking at at the people that have, have worked hard, put themselves in, in those types of positions. But then I think there's, there's guys at the other end of the spectrum too that, you know, maybe they are hunting some really highly managed farms, but they want to give everybody big buck advice. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And and they act like they're the expert. Now, I have a ton of respect for like those guys that have worked and, and are managing a farm, but I do look at that um, as a different thing, n- n- not uh, as um, less than or more than I just look at it as a different thing than the guy that's going on like a, a DIY hunt and mm-hmm. on, on unmanaged ground. I have a ton of respect for both because I know the one with the farm takes a, a lot of time, a lot of hard work, a lot of commitment and sacrifice. I mean, that is to definitely be respected, but for me personally to make sense of it. And for, I think for a lot of younger hunters coming up that think, you know, I should be, you know, I should be able to, you know, I'm just going to throw their names out there, but listen to, to guys like the Drury's, you know, that have made a, a beautiful place for themselves that they're always going to have trophy deer. They expect to be able to hunt and see deer like that when it's not reality, you know, and they're taking their advice. So I, I do think they're not to be separate, but, but to know that there is a difference between the two. And then there's a lot of it in between, you know what I mean? So I, 
I worry about uh, Tony Peterson and I talked about this and I do worry about sometimes on that, when you get to that real high level of management where you're buying up more ground and then you're, you're buying up more and buying up more and trying to keep more people out and you're raising these deer to a certain age and the management gets such a high level where the deer maybe, maybe aren't even acting quite like wild deer anymore as much. It starts to resemble something that's a little different. And then I, I just, I worry about that because it does, it does seem like you can get to that level where it's just like, man, it's, it's almost so far-fetched and unrealistic. It's like, I don't know. That's just, uh, that's just my opinion. And I'm not saying it is, but it, it does make you think. And then it makes you think too, like, are we losing some of the, the woodsmanship in hunting? You know, I had that, that conversation with Tony and I felt compelled to talk about that because I do think old school woodsmanship, reading sign and figuring these animals out and putting in time and finding them is an important skill. And, and I do feel like with all this focus on big bucks and management and then technology and cell cameras and all this stuff, it's like, we're losing that. We're, we're heading down a path that is away from that. So I do feel compelled to talk about that, that this is still a way, mm-hmm. you know, this is still a way. And I think it's important to keep that alive. So I don't, when we had that conversation, I, I didn't want it to come across like I was poo-pooing on like the management guys, because I, I'm the same way. I'd, I'd love to own a farm, you know, and, and manage it, management in my own way, but I don't want it to be ever be a situation where there's deer that are almost used to my presence and at look, you know, resembling more like cattle than, than wild deer, you know? And, and I'm not saying I, I know that that's what some of those situations are like, but it, it, it almost appears like you can kind of approach that type of situation. Almost if you get enough ground, you keep enough people out, you feed them. So, you know, I'm kind of like, I see both sides. I kind of fall somewhere in the middle, but yeah, I, I, I do think the obnoxious people on both sides are, are the majority of the problem. And most people, probably 80% of the people fall somewhere in the middle where they do hunt some private ground, you know, or they have some permission where maybe they're the only people. I have some permission spots where, I mean, I'm passing deer and hoping that they make it. It's the same type of thing. You know, I'm, I'm trying to manage best I can. It's just not on that level. And then I hunt public land where there's people everywhere and trying to grind it out. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I see, I see the argument, but there's the bad apples on each end of the spectrum. I feel like, I think sometimes some of those people that, that kind of claim themselves as the whitetail experts are hunting those highly managed properties. And then I think, I think guys can take offense to that a little bit. We're like, you're giving us advice on how to shoot big bucks where, you know, a lot of these people don't have that opportunity. So I think if some of these people were just more forthright with their situation, mm-hmm. okay, you know, yeah. I worked hard. This is what it is. You know, this is how I've, I've turned this into a highly managed piece of property. This is how I, I shoot the, the biggest, oldest buck on this, in this situation. I think being more open and honest with that and putting it out there, it'd be a little more accepted. And with all the new hunters that have come into hunting in the last couple of years as well, like you don't want them to feel like bad about shooting that little fork mm-hmm. horn, right? Right. Because all they're seeing on screen time and social and everything are these giant slobs right. that are coming off, you know, well, well, well that was, that was me. Like, you know, when I started off, you know, I was, I was hunting in Michigan where a hundred inch buck, 110 inch bucks, a heck of a trophy with a bow. And, you know, I was shooting some, 
some deer like that and kind of climbing up the ladder, started shooting some Pope and Young, some 130s. And then I, I remember like the magazines, everything. It's like these big 160 inch plus bucks. I told myself, I'm not shooting a, anything under a 140 in Michigan. I didn't see one for three years. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it can give. Yeah, you can't kill what's not there. Yeah. It can give the people, you know, the yeah, younger like, hunters yeah, that Levi are said that real earlier. impressionable that, that, you know, that so much focus on that can kind of take away maybe what hunting is really about. So I don't know. It's a good topic to to discuss because there is definitely lately. It does seem like there's a lot of yeah, and there's no black and white to it. There's not like a, a right or wrong answer to be able to to figure it out because everyone's got their different values and the reasons why they do it and what their kind of goals and expectations are. So it's a it's kind of a um, it's definitely a tough a yeah. tough thing to navigate. And I, I, to, to me, it just it really boils down to is like is not really not judging like what someone is doing it i I get the argument about like the the newer hunters side of it it's like okay they don't know the difference between like okay taking tips from andy may versus mark drury depending on where they're hunting at and what their expectations are or what's even available i guess so it's it uh yeah i i can i can see both sides of that yeah i think um you know it's you you have to be able to kind of read between the lines now because with, there's so much information, right? Mm-hmm. There's social media, TV shows, YouTube, everything. It's like everybody's an expert. And like a lot of guys, like, well, not a lot of guys. Some guys really don't know what they're talking about. You know, like maybe they just have a lot of money and have bought ground and have somebody else manage them. And they're going to shoot 200 inch deer every year and really couldn't hunt their way out of a wet paper bag. You know, there is that. But there's also, I feel like a lot of times the guy that's worked his way through and just wants to manage big deer and is a great hunter and a woodsman can read sign and big timber and acorns and no food plots can do all that. But like really likes managing deer gets mixed in with that guy just because he has ground, just because he kills big deer every year. Like he's just doesn't know what he's talking about. He only kills those big deer because of the ground he owns. Mm -hmm. I think that's where you have to be careful where you put these guys. And there's guys that hunt public alone that shoot 120 inch deer over the year. That if you turn them loose on that piece of property, they're going to kill the biggest deer on it, you know, cause they're great hunters mm-hmm. and 120 inch deer is the biggest deer that was where they were hunting. Yeah. You know? And so you can't get stuck on that. Like, Oh, it's a tiny little 10 point, you know, what's well, the biggest deer within 10 square miles of here. And he killed it. And if you turn him loose on your farm, he's going to kill that deer too. You know, the biggest deer yeah. on it. So, I don't know. I think we all just need to hunt because of why we want to hunt and don't point so many fingers. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's good advice. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. I thought this was a good, uh, I thought this was a good conversation yeah. for this group because we all are on kind of, I feel like different varying scales of the, the spectrum and have different point of views based yeah. on, you know, where we came from to where, where we came from. All, all I'll say to end that, that part is that I hope to be able to have to work towards having land that I can manage and be able to do that. And it's like right now I love chasing whitetails in the big woods, but at some point I'd love to, to be able to go, you know, see a deer every day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that'd be, that'd be a start. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, and, and move my evolution as I yeah. grow as a hunter and, well, and, and it's just so awesome that Levi was kind enough to extend his farm to us. Yeah. That until was really we're nice. able really to nice get there. To so thank you so much for that. Yeah. Well, it means the world. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm actually on the way home. I'm stopping by and doing some shed hunting. I thought we were going with Come him on. right now. Yeah. Well, yeah. Jordan's been all over. 
it. Yeah. Yeah, no, he's, show you he's sharing me some waypoints. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he showed good, us the man. back access points. Yeah, we saw how many deer in two says three. Yeah, three deer. So, hmm. yeah. right. good luck. One yeah, of them was it. the right deer, though, One right? of them was a big one. So that's all yeah. that matters. One of them was a big one. Yeah. No, it's 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 an interesting conversation. And uh, let's, let's bring in, we're going to s- switch out some people here. So, if, uh, let's... Uh, I, I want to keep I want to keep Levi on for this part, but Taylor, let's have you swap out with one of you guys here. Jump in, and then uh, Andy uh, jump out too. But I, w- I want to leave in Levi for one portion. Yeah, I meant to tell Taylor during that that his um, performance in School of Rock was spot on, dude. Oh yeah, yeah. The, the Jack Black look like dude, it's unbelievable. Try to unsee that now, people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I it's been driving me nuts. Track. I'm like, who does he remind me of? Yeah, like I know somebody, Jack Black. <laughs> All right, so we just uh, had Garrett Prawl sit down and the Johnny Stewart back on. Both these guys have been on the show, so again, I'm not going to do any sort of. Um, intros or anything you guys have all all been on the show but um as they've been sitting in the background kind of watching listening understanding the the way we're going about this and and i I wanted to talk about um another kind of topic when it comes down to broadheads and talking about you know the the, there's another there's other debate there's debates about everything mm-hmm. but when it comes down to expandables and fixed blades and you know what's right and what's not and that that whole deal so i'd like maybe even um let's start out with garrett a little bit and kind of talking about your your thoughts on on the whole concept of uh um you know expandables versus the fix and then kind of your your thought process and how you think about it not that you know just your your thought process Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. The Mobile Hunters Expo is a consumer-based hunting show unlike any other. It provides an interactive learning experience where you can try all things mobile hunting and learn from the best in the business. Come experience an unbiased, community-based environment where you can improve your hunting skills and find the right equipment for your needs. I'll be speaking at the Nor'easter Show in Mannheim, Pennsylvania at Spooky Nook Sports from August 9th to 11th, 2024. So come check it out or either of the other shows in uh, Michigan and Georgia. You can purchase tickets online at the mobilehuntersexpo.com or grab tickets at the door. I'll see you there. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's pretty easy to fall into one of two camps and go on one side of the fence or the other, but both of them definitely have pros and cons. I mean, I can pretty easily objectively state that, you know, if you're shooting a long distance, like mechanical, no doubt is going to have an advantage. But at the same point in time, if I'm hunting thicker timber and even a 30-yard shot, I'm not going to have shooting lanes. Well, then maybe it's not as big of a difference. Maybe I'm more likely to have that hard courting away shot or, you know, so a lot of times I usually have a mixed quiver where I might have like two expandables and like three fix and I've shot all of them. And so I know where they, where they'll hit. But 
nine times out of 10, I'm usually grabbing for the fixed blade just because I'm hunting that type of scenario. But if I'm out like Nebraska or something, that's kind of windy. Maybe I'll reach for that mechanical in that scenario. I think for me, the biggest thing is, are they razor sharp? You know, I'll take the blades off mechanical, run them over the, you know, the strop to make sure that they're cutting hair. Same thing with the fixed blades and just durability through the component system and the head itself. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, make sure that it hits where I want to hit. Yeah. And, and I know, cause I know I, I wanted you in on this one cause I know you are, um, for lack of better terms, a geek when it comes to testing things and wanting to understand every, you know, aspect of them from the, the engineering side of you, I guess is where I was getting at with that. And so it's, it's, it's interesting to hear that side of it. Um, and Levi, what about, what about you, your, your thoughts on this? Yeah. So I grew up, you know, before we were, when we were hunting back in the day before mechanicals, you know, I was muzzies by six pack at Walmart and you know, that's kind of yeah. last you for the season, you Terminator know, Terminator one twenty five. Oh yeah. The wasp thunderheads, you know, and you know, I had good experiences and bad experiences with, with that, you know, I'd hit deer well and they'd run 30 yards with a great blood trail and I'd hit them in the same spot and they'd run 400 with a drop. Maybe I didn't find them. And, um, you know, I'm fine. My broadheads, a blade broke, you know, whatever. And I'm like, did that happen on entry? When did that happen? You know? And then the first mechanicals came out and I hated them. I hated mechanicals. Um, the rear open mechanicals, slap cut mechanicals. I didn't like that. Like it was, um, for a long time. And then, um, and I really don't even think it's a mechanicals to fixed argument as it is like which mechanical how does it operate which fixed how does it operate right because all mechanicals and all fixed aren't on the same level um and really for me like it's i think it's all about your confidence and what you're confident in and if you hate mechanicals and have had nothing but bad experiences with them you probably shouldn't shoot them because you're going to be having that in your head the whole time right for me that's the fixed side of it i i only shoot a fixed head if um it's a state where a mechanical is illegal, but mm-hmm. I also have a 31 inch draw and pull 80 pounds and I'm not ever struggling for energy or, you know, anything. And then, so for me, the, I started shooting a swacker in 2010, 2009, something like that. And the whole thing that intrigued me on it was what I talked about earlier, shooting deer on the entry, like always making sure my broadheads were razor sharp. But the problem was, when you shoot a fixed or a cut on contact mechanical, it has to cut through fur, bone, fat, meat before it gets to the vitals, no matter what. So how sharp are they once they reach the vitals? Maybe you broke some blades off before you reach vitals. And I felt like that's where my inconsistency on blood trails was coming from was maybe my bro went through a rib and it dulled those blades before it got the vitals and didn't hemorrhage like it should have, or maybe I broke a blade off. And so with a swacker that opens inside that first rib cage, that's why that intrigued me so much. I was like, I know that when I hit vitals, it's cutting with fresh blades every single time. And so if you don't get an exit, yeah, your blood trail may not be great, but I haven't, if you hit them between the butt and the shoulder, they don't go very far, you know, but it's like my consistency of recovery and the length of trails now is like very few weird scenarios happening mm-hmm. where in the past I'd shoot one and I would think it's double long and I'm instantly sick to my stomach. Like 
which one am I going to get today? You know, where I feel like my consistency on recovery has been so good. Like if I hit him in the rib cage, it's great. Now, obviously with mechanicals, I don't want to hit him in the shoulder period, you know? And I do feel like, like a two blade, single bevel type head, fixed head is way better in a dead in the knuckle bone shot. Um, but for me, that's the only advantage um, when it comes to that. But not saying that's the case if you go from a rage to a, you know, fix or uh, something that split fire that opens because like he said on angles, those are awful. A slap cut mechanical on an angle is awful. It'll ride that rib cage all the way down on the outside and it's over. You think you smoked them and you never went inside the cavity. Mm. But again, where the swacker is, that point goes in two inches before it opens. So you don't have that deflection of those slap blades hitting. And so, you know, that's why it's really hard for me to compare. Yeah, no, I, 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 I get it. And it's, yeah. it's not as, again, as with anything, it's not as black and yeah, white. it's not it as is, black and white as people yeah, think. It's fixed and yeah, first mechanical, exactly. so to speak. Like, so I, I had to have, uh, in my, in my quiver, I typically have three, three fixed and two mechanical, similar to what you have in, in mine. It depends on the scenario. Like, you know, when I'm hunting off the ground and I'm hunting whitetails off the ground, I like to have uh, fixed on there because there's a chance that I might be shooting a frontal shot on mm-hmm. a deer at, you know, 15 yep. yards. And for that, I, I feel the confidence of having that in there. And for a while I was real hardcore, like fixed because I had such issues with certain mechanicals mm-hmm. in the past, not opening and all yep. these different things. And it gave me, you know, that bad taste in my mouth until actually recently, actually last year was the first year I started and I shot my white tail with a mechanical and, um, and I was like, man, it opened it up a lot more and it had those advantages to it. And I can see, I can see that side of it too, where it's like, okay, um, I have the, the ability for the blood trails and the recovery and all those things that I, I just think it's so situational and I, it doesn't, it's not a, a hard answer one way or another, but for me, yeah. it's like, it's very situational what I feel confident in. And it's gotta be for the fixed side of things. It's gotta be something that, that can shoot well, which most of it comes down to your bow tuning, but still at the, at the same time, it's gotta, you gotta have confidence. And I don't want to be like someone that has to, switch my site up or do something just because I'm throwing broadheads on like that just feels mm-hmm. wonky and doesn't give me that, that confidence that I need, you know, what about you, Johnny? You've probably used a bunch of different broadheads over the years. Yeah, I have. And it was interesting. Listen to Levi, what he said about the Schwacker, how he said it goes in two inches before it expands in, in like an, an angle shot and that, that type of broadhead helps. I think in the past I thought of it as I wanted my broadhead to kind of cut, on the way in to, to give uh, a bigger entrance hole. Mm-hmm. But I guess maybe um, that was stuck in my head. I didn't really, you know, think too much about it. So, um, but, you know, usually if you're in a tree anyways, your, your hole is going to be down low, mm-hmm. you know. But um, going back to what Garrett said about the mixed quiver, if you guys seen me shooting today, you've really seen a mixed quiver. <laughs> yeah, you had a couple different arrows well, and broadheads yeah, in there. You guys are novice. I mean, when you get to my level, you got the um, different size shaft, the length, and that. <laughs> One day you guys will get there, you know. But um, I think uh, as far as broadheads, um, you know, if you're gonna if if you have a well placed shot, you know, any broadhead's gonna do the trick. I think. Um, what you feel confident in. I don't have the 
the length and the energy maybe that Levi has. Um, so you just make sure um, with your setup that you have good penetration. Um, and always try to aim aim low, keep 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 low on the bottom of the heart up, maybe an inch or so, because I feel like there's always a chance, you know, that a deer kid, like Levi said earlier, and I sitting over there, he, he puts a lot in his brain to help um, occupy it as opposed to um, like competition shooting. And, and there is a lot to think of, like, and that's one big thing that I, I tell people is like, is that deer um, alert? Is he going to drop? You know, that's, that's a, you know, and it's almost to a moving target somewhat, mm-hmm. you know, but you got to count and, and your experience will help you um, figure out. But I just always said aim low and lethal, you know, in a well-placed shot. But um, I've stuck with the ram cap for a few years and it's just the overall, I think when I was younger, I used uh, really young, you know, 18, uh, I used like 70, 80 pound fingers, long axle wheels. And we used, I remember the first, um, expandable we used was um i forget i i remember the name earlier but i think the cutting diameter was like two and a half three inches which we figured hey man we weren't good shots but we had the poundage and the weight <laughs> and we were just shooting you know you had um you had you had good penetration and you had uh, a little bit of room for error when you were shooting yeah. fingers with them big blades but then i remember it kind of shifted and i got talked into i'm talking 20 some years ago that oh now the thing's very lightweight to pull very lightweight and light and speed was everything light arrows and, and i'm like no i don't want to do that but the market went that way and i'm like and and i went with it and and i was still trying to use expandables and they just i didn't get no penetration and, and um so I gradually worked my way back to having some energy, some some more poundage, and but I, um, through the years, yeah, I, I used mainly expandables, and I think with me, um, I uh, put more effort into spending my time in the woods scouting this when I had the time, and it wasn't so much tuning and and and, and trying different broadheads. So I think I stuck like maybe what Bo said, a uh, uh, expandable to be more accurate. But I, I got into the Ramcat maybe. I'm I'm thinking six eight years ago, and just the sound that if I'd used other um, expandables and the sound it made on impact and, and the things I, I did um, that really impressed me, you know. But I think a, a well placed shot, any any broadhead is is going to do the trick. So. Yeah, and it, it's funny. Um, I, I feel like with you, Johnny, though you you just it doesn't matter what's on the end of your arrow, you're just going to kill the deer. Yeah, and over the years, <laughs> I think it's confidence. No matter what you do. And how much experience, you know, you have the experience and the time and, and, and it's instinctual to where you mentally believe that you're going to kill that animal. I mean, for years uh, uh, I had, and I still do have the target panic. And, and I sometimes, when I was younger, 18, 15, I love shooting my boat. I developed target panic. It's been a long time since I loved it. Mm-hmm. And I just lived with it. And I put more of my love into chasing deer and learning them. And, and, but through them years shooting and hunting, um, I was a bad, sh- you know, I was a bad shot, but if I figure if I hit a pie plate, I'm good. But when I get into the, the, the woods and I hunt, I was so confident in killing deer that I, I see the arrow going through the animal before I even shoot it. Like I know, and my, my friends would make fun of me. You can't hit the broad side of the barn, you know, like literally I said, I know, but I'm going to kill that deer. Like I believe that in, in just in life in general, if you believe it, you will see it. You know what I mean? That's, and that's how I was, uh, and that's how I still am. And, and, uh, I do want to get back into, you know, and I, I think I'm going to make an effort this year, um, watching everybody here, you know, everybody was a really excellent shot. I, I thought, and, and I'm like, man, I need to, you know, and putting yourself around 
people that are that good at, at their craft and what they do, like a lot of these guys here, you know, that makes you a better person. So associate, associate yourself with them people. And so I think this year I'm going to focus on, um, getting better and maybe work on that target panic. But yeah, I think just like you said, Bo, I just believe I'm going to kill that animal. Like I, I know it, I know it, you know, I see and it, it kind of happens, which is maybe not how everybody is, but I, I think you put that much time and effort and you do it so much. It's like riding a bike, you know, and you know that it's going to happen, you know, that's your outcome. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So I wanted to um, swap out Levi, unless you have anything else you want to say there. We're going to get Levi, Levi out and, and pull Lee in. So thanks for coming on, Levi. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. What's, Lee, come on in. You Pants on or are you just getting in here like that? All right. This is awkward. <laughs> yeah, that's... Were you in the hot tub again? Not yet. Oh, you were just about to get in the hot tub. I was about to get in the hot tub, and then Taylor came out yelling at us. Well, like, hey, you, we're, you're about to get on. Why do you I have, have your towel on? Because I'm still wet. Oh, okay. From last night. I gotcha. Well, yeah, so I wanted to bring Lee on for this conversation with this group here. And the Lee, you haven't been in here much, but the framework is basically that I'm asking like a specific question or a specific topic and then getting everyone's uh, perspectives on it. Okay. And with you guys, I wanted to... It's curious because we all kind of hunt different types of places. And I wanted to say, what is your favorite time of the year that you feel like you're the most confident in killing a mature buck and why? And let's start with, we'll start with you, Lee, since you just jumped on. Um, yeah. So I think what's cool about the group we have is that I feel like we're very diverse that we just have kind of guys like on all ends of the spectrums and it's a really cool blend. Cause I, I like learning from other people. I mean, Garrett and I were like on the, on the drive here from the airport, just sitting there talking about like, I've never hunted Michigan before. We're asking about like different forages and stuff. Certain times of the year I'm planning on hunting up there this year. And we're kind of talking like game plan type stuff. Like when are you going to be there? Um, he had a lot of knowledge that like, I'm, I haven't yet to learn. Um, so I think, I think it's just cool that like we all kind of come from different areas uh, and there's just a lot of knowledge like in this group, yeah, which is a very special thing. Um, but to kind of nail down your question, like you want me to just say like the specific time of year that is my favorite to try and kill a big deer. Yeah. That you feel the most confident. Opening week. Opening week. Opening week. Okay. For sure. And what, why is that? Uh, I work really hard to find a deer's bedroom. Most of my scouting, I mean, I, I scout year round, but a lot of scouting that I do is taking place now, February, March, April. And I feel like a lot of guys almost lose interest in deer hunting probably because it's, they're thinking, thinking about bass fishing or thinking about turkey hunting or, you know, whatever it is, it's just not deer season. They're not thinking about it, but I really like to use those months to really try and hone down on a deer. Cause if you can find them, then more often times than not, you're you're pretty close to their summer range. And I feel like when you can really hone in on a deer that time of the year, like the first week of the season, not every state opens at different times, but when they're still kind of in their summer patterns, uh, if you can find where they're like the, the area that they want to be in, I think they're super vulnerable. They're still on a pattern predictable and as long as you play the situation right i think that you can you know have a good make a good play at a, at a mature buck early like that 
Yeah. And they haven't learned, yeah, they haven't learned you yet. And you're right. trying to hunt them and put the pressure on it. Right. It's funny. Your, you and your, I were, your first sit is always your best sit. I think yeah. every sit after that, they're learning you, they're learning you, they're learning you. So it's like that first fresh, like it's, it's the first sits of the year. I, I think that like deer are unbelievable at patterning people and patterning, patterning pressure. And so I just think that like when you're at the front end of that, you know, yeah, your first sits are your best, you know, and you said something else, you and I've talked about this cause you know, every, we'll jump on the phone. It seems like once a week and talk about we're out scouting and doing all these things. And I was like, man, I haven't been able to get out as much. And you're like, you're still doing more than 99% of the people are right 100%, now, <laughs> yeah. you know? And I, I was like feeling guilty. Like ah, I need, I, I need to get out more. I need to do this. And, and it's like, well, there's not, there's not too many that are like us, even though we're all do, going different places and different types of places, but we're doing the same thing. And that's, that's where the, the homework's done. Well, the, the deer and, and I was talking to Garrett about this on the way and I've talked to you about it, but like the homework I'm doing in February and March is what will potentially, hopefully if the stars align, will kill this deer during the season, during the fall. And if I were to just kind of go up there like in the summer and try and figure it out, like it's, it may be too late at that point to try and figure out all the, all the stuff you need to figure out. Like it's the time and effort that you put in, now that kills a deer a lot of times when the fall rolls around. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like that is, I feel like to consistently kill big deer, it's gotta be a year round, like 365 day thing. And every bit of information you can gather about that deer, where he wants to be at certain times of the year, it all helps pay off in the end of, you know, putting yourself in the best position to get in front of that deer. Yeah. Just learning everything you can. And that, that to me is a 365 day a year kind of deal. It's not just a, well, it's August. Let's go, you know, look around a bit. And that's, that's fine for the people that do that. And people have success doing that. But, um, I think that but like, take it to the next level type of deal. People really overlook those springtime months to find big deer and just get clued in on, I mean, shed hunting is a huge, a huge advantage to just like, learning terrains that you're not really getting to see. Um, for me, like my style is door knocking. So in the springtime, I'll, I'll have no ambition to get, I mean, obviously I have ambition to get permission, but I'll just knock on a door just to say, Hey, can I shed hunt? And I'll learn so much from just being able to kind of walk these properties as opposed to where if I'm just asking for hunting permission, like they may say no, and I don't ever get to lay eyes on that property and kind of learn what's, what's going on in these places. Um, Sounds so, like sounds like a bit of an addiction, but that, that <laughs> that's what it has to be to to you know that's where you have to be if you want to success, be successful in what you're doing. You have to be doing that three six five or as much you know or not maybe that as often as you can. Yeah, you know you need to know, and that that's the word I always come back to in different times we talked on on podcasts or whatever. And I, Lee kept saying it. You got to know. You know. And the word K-N-O-W, you need to know what's going on. You know, there's a lot of tools, you know, like Spartan Forge and, and what have you to help you. But being out there and, and knowing everything uh, is the, the key to being successful, you know. So it, it's, it's that's what it comes down to a lot, I think. Yeah. So, Garrett, what's your what's your favorite time of year or when you think you have the, the best chances of, of killing a mature buck and why? I'd say for me it's definitely been late October. I'd like to say early in the season, I'd like to say the last week of season, 
my experience with the last week of season is that in theory it should work so great, but I've always had a really tough time finding that perfect scenario. And we got, you know, snow, it's crunchy. You can't get as close as you could early season. Early season, you can sneak right up on them um, and set up close. But a lot of times early season, the areas that I'm hunting, maybe it's an out-of-state trip. I don't have the intel leading up to it. I'm trying to figure stuff out on the fly. There's max food. There's max cover. And it's a lot of trial and error and throwing darts at the map to try and figure out, like, where a big one might be. I might be able to see deer, but finding a big one without having that intel going into it is tough. Um, Or it might be a scenario where I can't run trail cameras. Uh, because of the type of land that it is or it might be a scenario where you know i know the deer are going to show up in the rut they're going to show up late october and i'll try my hardest like let's say it's you know big multi-thousand acre piece but they're feeding on browse they're feeding on acorns and it's like yeah i can find the beds but then like there's so many additional challenges to that very specific thing because the mature bucks they're just not all over the place like most deer are Whereas late October, it's like, okay, I know year over year from the scouting in the spring, from the actual hunting, the observations, the trail camera data, these deer are going to show up at this time, at this place. It's almost a guarantee. And so if I take that prep time and I get, this is the tree I need, need to sit in to hunt a deer that's working this scrape. These three bucks all work this scrape within this, you know, one week period generally. Maybe one of them gets killed, maybe a new one comes in, but it's like, you know, five-year plan, get that all laid out then uh, my, my confidence in that type of setup is a lot higher. It seems like once the rut gets going, then my sightings of the mature ones go down again. Cause it seems like, you know, late October 31st, November 1st, like depending on the, the land, you know, then you see one right on a doe and it's like, you don't see that buck unless he's like right on a doe in heavy cover. Isn't, until, isn't it later. crazy that like almost to the date you'll have these deer show back up on a scrape. Like you've, obviously got a lot of history in this certain area that you're talking about describing. It's like you said, generally like within this week is when they'll hit. Like to me, that has always blown my mind. Cause like deer don't have a calendar. Mm-hmm. They're not knowing what the, they're just going by kind of what's happening inside the inside of them. And it's like, I've had deer that I had no idea where their summer range was, but almost within 24 hours of like October 10th, they'd show up on this like same exact scrape year after year after year. And it, it, it just kind of like, blew me away at like how almost dead on to the date that they will kind of kind of use these patterns again and that that to your point is just like hit you know kind of years of knowing the history of a place like that and like how those deer are kind of using an area but it's tough because you can't use that approach on like an out-of-state trip Mm -mm. because you you don't have that multi-year worth of you know aggregate of information to look at right so you know you adjust your standards accordingly but it's like you figure a little bit out one year and then maybe maybe there was one buck that you saw sightings or camera pictures of or whatever, but he'd only show up on those scrapes maybe like once a week or once every other week. Then you do some more scouting and find a different scrape. Then that year, it's like, man, he was on there three times a week. We're getting closer to that buck's, you know, where he likes to be during that time. Yeah. And you got three, four or five deer, like you're looking at all these pictures and it's like, well, I think this one probably is most spending most of his time in this block. This one's here. There's some overlap here. I get both of those deer in the same camera at the same time. And it's like, yeah, it's a, it's a multi-year strategy, but I mean, if we're talking bigger deer, not general deer, that's the only thing I really have a lot of confidence in. I think history kills deer more than almost anything. Yeah. And history repeats itself. Like you said, they don't have a calendar, but um, they know to be here, whether it's, you know, amount of light, you know, that they're, entering their eye or whatever tell them that this is or you know they live 
in the area and they know these does, oh man, I know she's going to come into heat and whether, you know, some of them does are still alive. It's just like, okay. So then you, you know, you see the, uh, the time you were there and, you know, the following years when like, man, I got to get in that area and, and check, you know, stuff like that. So Andy just hopped back on Garrett. I told you, Andy came up with me to Michigan and rode around, did the door knocking stuff. Kind of got a bit of a crash course of, <clears throat> have you done that before yet? Like, Knocking on doors, the door knocking, but but mostly like smaller properties. I mean, I, yeah, I've done a, I've done a a fair amount of it. Yeah, a, a good amount of it. But it was really cool to tag along with you um, and just kind of see your style and your technique. And you know, I obviously we've we've known each other for a while. I've watched your stuff, so I kind of know some of the areas you target. But it was really cool to see um, see the area you're targeting, and in particular. Uh, you know, a deer that you are potentially going to pursue, but the, the, de- the detective work that you did at home and then coming all the way to Michigan, um, multiple times, you know, I just was, I was so impressed by that, to be honest with you. And I know that's your game. And I know, you know, you have, you have some, the time and this is, is what you do for a living, but still I was just, I asked myself after that, I was like, would I do something like that? And I was like, I don't think I would, you know, I was really impressed by that commitment and that detective work and that just that effort that you put in. Um, that was really cool to see. Well, I think, I think, I think everybody here is like, we're all a little sick and twisted in our own ways that like these deer just drive us nuts. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. It's like, I mean, you said the word obsession or, yeah. But it's, it's like beyond that. Oh yeah. It's, it's almost like there's not a word to describe it. Like I, I almost feel like I'm addicted. Like I'll have withdrawals Mm -hmm. if I'm not like in my head actively pursuing an animal. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, if, if I'm, it's almost like I'm lost if I'm not in the game of like trying to figure out a deer. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like a problem. And I, and I think at some point in my life, like we would probably not film hunts anymore. And I don't think I would ever change a thing of, of me personally like what i'm doing mm-hmm. i just can't stop i feel like to me it's it's the the learning curve that you get every time because every time you go in the forest or wherever you may be hunting there's all it's always evolving and changing whether it's uh time of year or years later and it's something your brain is seeing new stuff every time to where it's stim- to me it's a stimulation that i like to have that's why i always find myself going to new these new areas and learning this and keep like growing my brain as a muscle you know and it's just like that's what attracts me to it it's like i notice myself if i watch myself on a video my eyes are moving like 100 mile an hour i'm looking at every little thing there's so many details there's a story there and you just gotta you know you gotta read it you know but i feel just like because there's so much to see it and that's what like um that's, that's what i really like about it is is just it's always something new that you're learning there, you know, whether it's a different buck or a different piece of ground, you know, but, um, and then you do, it's kind of like you can get lost in it to where you can't escape. And it's like a a rabbit hole and you're just it. And I was like, man, I gotta get, I gotta get back home and get to North. Cause I, I'm just, I'm gone. And like, that's why a lot of times I hunt myself because usually when I go hunting with people, it's like at night, we'll go eat dinner. And, I, and like when I'm out myself, like I'll sit in my vehicle and study my map and I'll sleep there and I'll think about it. And that, but that's who I am. And I know that I kind of have a problem. So I kind of go by myself. It's kind of like when, when other people are with me, it's kind of like, um, 
having your buddy with you kind of communicate and ha- it's the hangout the enjoyment but like i'm i'm really my best when i'm by myself because it's like a never-ending process going on whether i come out at a stand or you know you know i've i've drove around before daylight you know to see where the deer are and it's just like you're it's it's not even normal for you to be around the person because you're you're you are like that's who you are it's like you there's, I don't even have the someone that I want to talk to because I'm just so my brain's so consumed with what's going on, and you just, you know, that's why a lot, I, a lot of times, and the stuff I've done, people are like, like go out at night, check your cameras, middle of the night, like like things I've done. It's like I've done like most of the people too. don't won't, they're not going to participate in the things I do. It's just you're just like you said, a little bit crazy. I think uh, I think to be to do anything at an elite level and continue to grow, there has to be that level of obsession and. You know, a lot of people can look at that as an almost an unhealthy level, but that's how you get those really elite type people. Not calling any of us elite, but that you, you see those people like like Levi, you know, and those guys can really do things at a high level. It's a, it it is. It's an obsession. It's a almost like a sickness. But like you were saying, um, you know, if you're not doing something every day to try to find like, you know, track down these these big animals, I I, I have that same. Um, that same obsession and that same thought every day for me, it's a little harder because, you know, I work two jobs. I got a kid. I, I'm doing a lot of commuting back and forth. So the way I, the way I do that for myself, I, I, I have to do something every single day that is going to make me a better hunter or improve my chances during a hunting season. So the way I make sense of that in my mind is I'm just kind of scratching and clawing for time. So it might be, you know, I can't, I can't go out and door knock or I can't go out and scout. So, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure I shoot my bow. I'll get up. I'm going to get up 30 minutes early before work and shoot, or I'm going to make sure I get there, uh, you know, that 30 minutes before dark, or if I can't even do that, okay, I'm going to put the block, the bag target right in my living room and I'm, I'm going to fire, you know, 30 shots just working on shot execution. So it's like, I feel I fulfilled that need to feel like I did something to get better. Yeah. You know, and then on the days where I do have a little more time, yes, I'm going out scouting. I'm trying to get some more permission or I'm scouting a new piece of public or whatever. But I have that same urge and drive inside of me that it's something I want to do every day is just be like enthralled in this process. And it can be hard for a guy working a nine to five, you know, with a family. And but you, you can still do it and it, it takes some balance, but you can still you know, find little things that you can do throughout the day to kind of fill that void and make you feel like you're doing something to become a better hunter. So I, I think for me, one of my biggest challenges personally is going to like, I'm a, I'm single guy, I'm not married. So like, I've got all this freedom, but I think at some point, like when you do have a family and a wife, it's like, you got to turn that off at some point because like, I, I feel lost if I have not found like the next challenge I want to pursue. And I kind of felt like Drew and I have like sort of conquered Atlanta in a way. And the next challenge that like kept us, you know, like just burning for it was like, go to new places, do what we've done, but go to, go do it in a different place. Find uh, another animal to like just the challenge of kind of figuring it out. And if, if I like, before I got in the game on that deer, like I was like losing my mind. 
but almost now that I've like, okay, I've, I'm getting pictures of them. I'm, I'm kind of putting the pieces. It's like, I can kind of like breathe again. <laughs> it's weird. But like, I know when I have a family, like I'm going to have to probably shut that off at some point. Mm-hmm. Like I can't drive to Michigan and just <laughs> randomly and just, and just go do it. Like it's just not an option, you, but you got to accept the fact that you, you might not be able to do things quite at the pace and, and maybe not at the level that you once did. But you have you've you've built up so much hunting knowledge and, and instinct that that will carry on. You won't. You'll still be able to achieve. Like for me, like I've I've almost been able to achieve better results as I've gotten older with less time. Yeah, because I because You're I was just I was, yeah I was just like you for you know before I had my daughter. Um, I mean, every day of the week I'd get out of work and I'd go scout until until darkness came. You know, and that's just. I had to be out there. I wanted to be out there as much. And you kind of build that knowledge. And then when some, you know, priorities come that are more important, like family and kids, you you can tone it down a little bit, you know, and you you can, uh, and still go out there and, and, and still hunt at a high level. Well, so the obsession part of it, like, and we're on a Spartan Forge retreat. I mean, we're all a part of Spartan Forge. That's why we're here. I mean, even when we've scouted all day, like after the time you and I kind of hung out and did all that stuff, like, I would still lay up at night just studying my Spartan Forge, the maps and stuff, and just like dropping pins, new places. I took a screenshot because on a phone, you can like look at your your hourly usage of each app and stuff. It was like 13 hours I was on Spartan Forge in like two days of just being up there and scouting. And it's like, you know, that's like, that's obsessive mm-hmm. to be looking at a map that long and just like, you know. Well, your your results, you know. Like your but, results speak to that. You know <laughs> what I mean? It's, it's, it, it, a lot of people want to achieve those types of results. And I mean, you're a, a perfect example of, of, of the type of level of effort and obsession that it takes. And it, you know, it's not for everybody. And when you do get a family and stuff, yeah, you, you have to kind of balance that out. And it, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of successful hunters that we all know that have had failed marriages or crappy dads. You know, so it is, it is a thing where, you know, when that time comes that you, you do have to prioritize it and put that above, you know, but you can still, you know, if, if your partner loves you and cares about you, you know, you can you'll always have that time to put into towards your passion. Yeah. But yeah, it, it is a big adjustment. It was, it was a, a hard thing for me to go from six days a week, you know, freedom doing whatever I want and constantly scouting, finding new ground and figuring this deer out to, you know, now I just get a little sliver each day to do something and it might just be fire a few arrows. Yeah. Well, you, uh, you've, you've learned to become very efficient <laughs> with your time. And I think that's with probably from, uh, you know, a lot of all those years of being able to put in that time. And then when you had to adjust, it's like, okay, I need to, um, not trying to speak for you, but, you know, figure out what these priorities are. And maybe it's, I can't scout 10 places anymore. I can only focus on two because this is what the time I have. Is that, how, how have you, how have you made that adjustment? I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, it, when, when I started getting limited on time, like actual hunting time, time in the woods, I think I remember making a post on a a forum that Garrett and I used to frequent a lot. I said, would you drive six hours to hunt two days. I made a post on that. Cause I had just done that and killed like a big 165 inch nine point. And everybody was like, no, I wouldn't do that. You know, I wouldn't travel six hours to hunt two days. Well, I just wanted to get other people's opinions, but I was so limited on time now. Like I was still doing that. I was driving six hours, 13 hours, eight hours to hunt 
a weekend. And most people are like, we can't, you know, can't get it done in a weekend. I mean, you might get lucky, but I would do that and try to stretch it out to three, you know, sometimes two days, sometimes three days, sometimes four days. And what I found was like a lot of the knowledge and instinct and skill that I had built up from all those years of putting all my time into it and just holding it. I mean, I, I, it was higher than my job. It was higher than relationships with girlfriends. Like, I mean, it was just, that's what I did. And then, you know, obviously you become a dad. It's like, boom, things shift dramatically. And I was okay with that. I mean, it doesn't compare to me, but it, it, it took a little courage to go out there and do that. And like, can I still, can I still do this? You no, know, even though I have two days, I mean, that seems crazy, but I would do it. And I started having success. Now, maybe I'm not tracking down the bull of the woods in two days, but I was certainly going to certain States and killing respectable deer that boosted the confidence. Like, Hey, I don't need a week. You know, I don't need five days. I can still get a good solid deer in a short amount of time, just going off the, the knowledge and the instincts that I built. So I just started building on that. And then I started, you know, being a little more picky and trying to add a little, you know, calling in sick or whatever, and taking three or four days, maybe you get a little pickier and, and up in that maybe age of the animal or, or the, the rack size of the animal and started killing some really good deer. And now like last year I drove 17 hours to hunt two days, you know, and, and most guys wouldn't do that, you know, and I did, yeah. I killed 163 inch mule deer, you know? So I, I have a hundred percent confidence to do that. And I'm okay with, I don't kill anything, but it's like, in my mind, it's like, I'm limited on time. If I don't do that, I don't ever get to have these adventures until she's out of the house, yeah. you know, but I want to be back to take her to school. I want to be back to take her to basketball practice, to work on basketball with her, my daughter I'm talking about. So that's my top priority. So I will still drive and make those long, those long distance, um, those long distance road trips, even though I have limited time. And I think a lot of guys, it's just may seem a little intimidating or something, but I think once you have that base knowledge, you can actually do that. You can go there and you might have to lower your standards. You know, if you were ever in that situation, maybe you're, maybe you're not targeting a 180 or 170, but you're like, you know, a solid 140, 150 in a new area that I've never been, you know, that's still a, a cool hunt. Yeah. You know, no, I, I get it. Hey, Andy, do you want to swap out with Drew for the end here? Yes. Thanks. Um, and so one of the, uh, so I'm, I'm going to go through uh, a question here and a thought based on some of the conversations that we had here is it seems like, you know, for you, Lee, um, you're talking about like, you've not that you have it completely figured out, but like you have hunted, you know, say the Atlanta suburbs for how long now and you wanted to start venturing out. So what, like for like this year specifically, or maybe even looking out in, in two, three years, like what, what are some, what are some of the goals or the things that you want to do or you want to improve on? You, you may have already covered it, but let's start with you on that since you brought it up. Um, for the, for the time being, uh, and again, I talked to Garrett about this yesterday. Like I'm looking for new experiences outside of Atlanta. Um, I'm still addicted to like the door knocking, you know, finding a, an awesome deer to pursue kind of, kind of game. But I think, uh, if I'm looking two or three years out, like I want to go then, and I'm going to start this year We're Drew and I are both starting this year. He's kind of already made steps going out West and experiencing other places. But like, I want to go hunt large places of public. Um, I want to kind of be well-rounded, but also like keeping the core 
kind of intact with like what I love to do. Um, but I think like experiencing other perspectives, other styles of hunting, um, things like that are, I just think it keeps it fresh. Mm -hmm. Like not that Atlanta got stale, but it was just like, we've been doing it for so long. It's just like, it's exciting to go somewhere else. And I think that's what keeps the, the fire fresh is like, again, we've kind of talked about this, but like the new, the new challenges, the new places, new environments. Like I got to figure out, you know, what, what they're feeding on or kind of what they're doing at certain times of the year in these new places. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think for me, like I'll always still hunt Atlanta. I mean, it's, it's home, but I want to keep like, I want to hunt with other people. I want to experience new things. Um, and just make sure that it doesn't ever get like stale to me. Yeah. Um, no, that makes sense. What What about you for you, Drew? I know like you've, you've been, you know, I've been talking quite a bit and you've been like looking at more Western hunts mm-hmm. and that kind of style. Like what's, what, what are you like, like from evolving as a hunter, what type of experiences that you want? What are some of your kind of goals or where are you trending towards? Yeah. I mean, I think the Western stuff is probably the low hanging fruit for me. I've just always loved being out West, being in the mountains. I, I love the adventure aspect of really anything, but applying that to hunting is just like, you know, two things in one. Um, just like the, the planning process of having to like, make sure you get all the right gear, uh, make sure you go into the right place when you have all this territory that you can potentially go hunt. Um, that whole aspect of it is just like really appealing to me. And it's probably because we grew up hunting Atlanta, which is the complete opposite. Um, and I say like the adventure aspect is probably what makes me most excited about hunting. But I think you can find, you can find that in any environment really like, just because we're hunting behind people's houses in the city doesn't mean that there's not adventure behind it. Cause there's, I promise you there's adventure when you go out and knock on 200 doors to track down one specific buck and you finally get it done. Even if you are like going back and sleeping in your own bed at night versus going out West and sleeping under the stars for 10 days, you know, without cell phone, cell phone service. So likely said, I mean, going and hunting new species and new environments is, I think what keeps us excited, yeah, excited to learn, um, excited to get more perspectives on hunting in general, just being around like all the guys here, everyone has a different background in hunting and different, uh, expertise. And just because you're really good at one thing, like we're good at the urban stuff, doesn't mean that we're any better than anybody else at, at the Western game or hunting big public land and, you know, the Northeast. Um, so I don't, I guess I don't want to, I want to broaden our knowledge and not feel so pigeonholed into the urban stuff while still sticking to the core, like Lee said, of what got us to where we are. Yeah. Um, I guess that's the, that's the answer on the hunting side. And then I've been kind of behind the scenes for a lot of the time with Seek One, like the production side is something that I'm passionate about. So constantly just kind of like pushing the envelope there, um, and always trying to, you know, bring better quality and tell the story better and show the environments better and, you know, show more respect to the animal. I think that's like a never ending pursuit. Yeah. 
No, I and 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 yeah, I, I can I can see that one. The the well, the quality of the production that you guys have done over the years has been incredible. But just from talking to you, like you just want to continually improve on that and go to the next level yeah. and see what's you know what's possible. And like I mean, and you guys are are talking to me about coming up and you know deer hunting gun season in Pennsylvania, you know, mm-hmm. in in the big woods and changing things. I think that perspective helps so much. Like it, you know even though that you've been uh, successful, you know, in the suburbs that might even help you by hunting different places Definitely. to hunt in the suburbs. Cause yeah. you learn different things. You know, you say you're out with myself or you're out with Johnny, or you're out with somebody. It's like, you're, you're getting those different ways of looking at it and say, you know, Johnny's looking at a track this way or something. You're yeah. like, okay, well, how can I apply that to the situation that I have in a different location, you know, back home or in Ohio or Michigan or whatever it might be. And it's like just taking all those things, but being around these types of people, is just like, it's, yeah, we're, we're there's very so much knowledge that. here and it would be, we would be idiots to not be a sponge and try and soak it up yeah. from whoever we get to interact with. I was thinking about the same conversation that I guess Johnny was telling a story about tracking deer in the snow last night. And he was saying stuff that like I've never even thought about before, mainly because it doesn't snow like it in down in Atlanta like it does up here. But all these little things, like even if you're just talking to having a, a story with somebody, or you have one hunting experience in a different environment, like you can take that and apply it to really anywhere. Yeah. Um, and so I guess like the point of that is never thinking that you know everything, even about where you grew up hunting. Cause there's so many different perspectives out there. There's so many different scenarios and environments and everyone kind of like goes on their own path to figure out what worked best for them. Um, and just like talking to people and experiencing those things is kind of what makes them stick. And then you can apply them to yeah, kind of where you're at. I totally agree. What about you, Garrett? What are some of your things? Like, you I mean, you've, you've hunted different States and different places. Like what, what, what's your like, what drives you right now? Like, what do you want to do or, or is it the same or what, what, what's it kind of look like yeah, from your perspective? It, it's kind of funny listening to Lee talk about how their, your guys' progression has gone. In some ways, mine has almost been going the opposite direction and where a lot of my early years, I was doing a lot of traveling. I was, you know, oh, I've never hunted that type of habitat before. That'd be really cool. Spent four days or a week out there or whatever and almost have kind of become a jack of all trades, master of none in certain ways. And so those experiences, I feel like I can draw on them now. But one thing I hadn't historically always done a whole lot of is just being hyper-focused on like, say one specific area or one specific deer or one specific, you know, class of animal or something like that to where now I'm almost like, you know, if I want to pursue something like that, I can't be traveling to four different States in the same year. I can't be buying all these different tags. I need to be able to spend, you know, narrow that down a little bit to maybe I get two or three tags and I just focus on those. At the same time, my wife has been slowly getting into hunting. So a lot of my time also has been kind of, you know, bringing her along, hunting with her, you know, film each other, um, show her the ropes, but at the same time, not be like, you know, trying to push her too hard. Um, just kind of let her go at her own pace. And so that's been really fun too, just kind of seeing that. I don't have any kids yet, but I kind of feel like maybe that would be a similar, you know, type of a thing, like getting your kid into archery. For me, it's, you know, getting my wife into archery and bow hunting and, and seeing her start to progress. So both of those things have kind of been what has excited me, you know, most recently. You know, that's, that's, that's a really good, that's a really good point. And like, for me, I know 
I realize I don't love, I, I love, well, I actually, I love going to new places and doing that, but I need, for me, I need a, a decent amount of time in those locations. Like even for me, like I, up to this point, you know, I've, Pennsylvania has been my main focus, but I would be jumping around to these different states and I felt like I could never overly commit to one thing. And I like like fully embracing myself. And now when I do Western trips, um, you know, and I'd work to the point where I've had been able to have the vacation enough to take off, but I won't go for less than 10 or 14 days because I was like, I want to fully understand it and be there and learn the train, learn what they're feeding on, understand all of those different things about the animals. And that's what really drives me. And, you know, with, as I'm able to get more opportunities and stuff, I still like, still, I, I don't want to just shotgun myself too much and, and, and again, that's just where I'm at personally too, which kind of aligns a little bit with what you were, what you were saying there. Yeah. I've been kind of thinking the same thing. I've, you know, I've been building points I've done the over the counter stuff in Colorado several times now, but it's like, what I'd like to do is once I have sufficient points, I can go on maybe a little bit more exclusive tag and take two weeks off. And just that year, I'm not as focused on whitetail. Like the mm-hmm. Western thing for that year is, you know, the focus, um, and just, you know, try to, like you said, not scatter yourself so far with a shotgun approach on any given year. Yeah. No, I, I think it's, it's interesting. I I like hearing everybody's kind of like thoughts and how they're looking at, you know, their own personal goals and where they're at and where to, where to kind of go next. And like, and, and for me too, I'm really trying to get better at the, like, I feel like I spend a ridiculous amount of time in the woods scouting and learning, but like there was things, and I've said this before, I'm still trying to get better at is like, the different species of trees and plants and what they're feeding on and understanding that woodsmanship side of it. Like, that's why I'm constantly like questioning things. Now, if I see, and I've learned this a lot from Johnny specifically is like noticing, you know, and deer nibbling on this or that. Okay. What is that? Why can I, can that be reproduced? If I go to this area and I find something that's like that and really like getting down to those granular, you know, portions of it. Mm-hmm. Do you have the, uh, the app? I think it's called picture this. Yeah. Didn't something? I tell you it? Wasn't that one? I don't know, maybe. You okay. told me about it, I know, so you oh, really? might have heard from yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. We can just take pictures of any any plants or trees and it tells you what it is. Yeah, that's uh that's that's exactly what I that's what I yeah. use to to learn for most of that. So there's not a cheating, just using technology yeah. to to help with with that learning curve. I was just um this this weekend I'll be doing that the the mountain buck scouting camp and I'm telling people about using the app oh, really? and how to how to do it. It's like I, I do it all the time. I'll go through and be like, okay, I'm seeing this a lot and there's a lot of deer sign around this specific thing. What is it? And even if I don't have service, I'll take pictures of it so I can take a look at it later and try to understand, you know, what that is. But yeah, it's a super valuable tool. That's I mean, that is a huge learning curve going to new places. Yeah. Because the you know the vegetation changes so much even over just small distances yeah and it took i mean i feel like it took us a decade of hunting atlanta to kind of really learn what deer key in on down there and then you go to kentucky which is not that far and things are totally different we're up here like what is this it's like red bud everywhere um whatever all this under underbrush is like you don't all oh, the green briar and green the, bri- yeah. yeah multiflora rose and stuff that's, yeah. yeah you just don't see that down where we are so it's all of a sudden you're in a totally different environment so many different variables that you have to figure out yeah so that's 
it, it, that is funny because like and it, it can even be like 10 miles down the road like yeah. places in pennsylvania i've hunted i've hunted completely different looking environments from terrain to the vegetation that's there to what they're feeding on and, and it's always like this uh trying to understand what that specific area you know what the primary food sources and browse and all those different things because it's you know it's so different and it's like i i remember hearing all the time like oh deer don't like ferns they don't eat them and it's like johnny and i like it's like where we're at they freaking pound the ferns in in the winter time and the bulbs and they're you know they're always digging them up and it's just like that that's where you know maybe another area where there's better food sources that they don't even pay attention to them but it's like knowing what that specific area is and being able to to really understand it that's similar to atlanta there's ground ivy everywhere around atlanta and certain areas most of the areas that deer don't touch it but then you go to a certain area and you like all the trees the ground ivy is eaten off the tree at at browse height Hmm. I, i don't know what it is like i don't know if the soil is different and there's a different like sweetness in the in the leaf or there's not other available forage for them. But yeah. for whatever reason, like, or maybe even like a family of does watched their mother eat the ivy. And so they got onto that. And like most other deer, deer don't, I don't know. You just, I mean, it's so, it's so specific to your area that you, it just takes time hunting and observing to really learn that and going out of state and trying to figure that out in two days. Like Andy was just saying, it's just, it's a tall task. Yeah, uh, def- definitely is. So hunting, hunting Tennessee this year, I was cutting a shooting lane and I cut this branch and it was, it was bush honeysuckle. I didn't know what it was at the time. It's apparently invasive to Tennessee, cut this branch down and I go and I'm sitting there like a day or so later. And these deer come in and start pounding the leaves off of this branch that I've cut. And I was like, just, I was like, holy smokes, they, they're, they're killing this stuff. I'd never seen it before. you know, new to us. And, uh, it's like, I started looking for more of that in other places and other spots and stuff. Like that's, I just was like, the light went off. It's like, Oh, I paid attention to what they were eating. They're eating this stuff like crazy. Go find some other places that have that forage. And it was like every place they had that I could find that stuff. There was a pile of deer in these little areas. So I think a lot of guys, at least I know early on in my hunting career, like I wasn't paying it super close attention to those details. I was just kind of like you know, as a teenager, just kind of aimlessly, like just going hunting, you know, I, I wasn't like analyzing what deer were doing, why they're doing it, what they're eating on and like trying to figure that out. I was just, I, I think that that's, you know, probably the progression of a hunter's like, you just start to pay attention to small things like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally agree. Well, guys, I think we've been rolling for like two Three, hours, four hours. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> been a while. It's been a while now. And a lot of people came through. It's, it's always good. I love doing these types of podcasts with all these different perspectives and ideas and everything here. So I, uh, appreciate everyone coming down and sitting here and definitely had a, had a good time. So any thanks last words? What? I said, thanks for hosting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no problem. Any last words, Lee? You not always, for you, no. You always have something to say. Yeah, you got say. something. Not got nothing to say to you about, about Bomar. Nothing. Atomic. Nothing. We'll settle in the hot tub later. <laughs> <laughs> All right. With that, we're going to end this one. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> 
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.